Well, see, okay, all we need to do, when you're 35, Stephen, uh, <laughs> you can be president, and you'll call together a great meeting of the minds for our time. You know, a council of Elrond, but like... Oh my gosh, I'm imagining this right now. It's fantastic. I know, right? Hit me up, Stephen. <laughs> you know, so we convene Stephen's great council of Elrond, where we all just agree on, this is America's national strategy, and then you know, we just lock everyone in a room for like a couple days... And then we just hash it out and go, okay, this is it. And then you know, hopefully it survives past your administration, Stephen. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then America is great again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together young professionals from all over the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining me today in the virtual studio are two of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard. Hello, everyone. And Valida Asmatova. How's it going, people? Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So this episode is about America's grand national strategy. Throughout the Cold War, the United States had a single defining strategy that drove nearly every aspect of its foreign policy. That goal was the opposition to Soviet communism and the spread of anti-American regimes all over the world. Ultimately, this strategy worked or, at the very least, Soviet communism was defeated in some part thanks to the American strategies of containment and rollback. But since then, America has struggled to find a new national strategy. We've lurched from generic support for human rights to fighting a, quote, war on terror, to supporting democratic movements in Middle Eastern countries. Well, at least the ones that aren't part of our core national interests. But what should a grand national strategy look like? Who wants to go first? So what I think that the national strategy should look like is, and, and people are going to make fun of it, but in the best way possible, one of those five-year plans or 10-year plans that people think about, but with incredibly broad overarching themes, not super specific. And so you have a lot of people out there who think that national strategy and grand strategy is in the realm of the eggheads and of the armchair generals who just have delusions of influence and... Uh, not no real effect and that a grand strategy is just a pie in the sky it's impossible to do and if you try to do it it's you're you're wasting your time but if we were able to come together as a country and honestly find a single perspective to move forward in the world i think it would do us a great good um I, I, I do believe that this would have to be prefaced by a lot of different things, and those things would be such as it have to be based on a national consensus. It could not be Democratic. It could not be Republican. That's just not how grand strategy works. If it's based on a single party, the next party will come in just like what we saw after Barack Obama and just refute it. And to be fair, what I say Barack Obama, he did it to George Bush's strategy. And Donald Trump did it to his strategy. So this is a two-way street. This is a both of a problem. But shouldn't that policy transcend 
party politics. I mean, as, to as much of an extent as possible. So maybe it should be more of a 10-year plan than a five-year plan. Sure, but to and see, I think that instead of being nonpartisan, it should be bipartisan. So if you have something that's nonpartisan, someone can always come back and say, yeah, well, this was actually their doing. Like the, uh, I'm going to forget the organization that controls the budget, the Office of Management and Budget, OBM. Uh, mm-hmm. All their projections for the economy, when you know one when one political party doesn't like the OBM's projections, they say, well, it was, that's just, just that's Republicans or that's Democrats. That is a nonpartisan organization. But because they're nonpartisan, they get attacked by both sides as a tool. When you have a bipartisan committee, you can't say, well, that's just the Republican, as long as it's functioning correctly, I should say. You can't say that this is just the Republicans steamlining things. This is just the Democrats steamlining things. No, no, no. There are an equal a number of senators or house members, whoever you want to be on there from a democratic and a Republican persuasion, a couple independents on there as well. And you know what? That builds a, not an an unimpeachable, but certainly a strong bulwark for national consensus because they have to take into account all of the domestic policies that the United States, um, might go forward with all the foreign policies the United States might go forward with. I do think that the one overarching theme that a lot of, if you want to say armchair generals do miss is that the U S grand strategy and all grand strategy has to be based in domestic politics. Um, So you can't go and invade another country as a democratic country and stay there for, 18 years without causing significant backlash in your domestic politics, which then affects your foreign politics. It's it's just impossible to do a uh, long-term strategy like that. So one of the things that really we should be looking at is that it doesn't, no grand strategy should supersede or should go further than what the domestic politics are. And that is a huge constraint to any uh any grand strategy, because let's be honest, people don't care about foreign politics. People don't really want to be involved in the world. So what is a constrained grand strategy then looking out in the rest of the world from a country who doesn't really, the domestic base doesn't really want to interact with the world. It's the, the elitists and the, the people who see a brighter future and who knows what they want to be called. Those are the people who really want to be interacting with the world, who want to be engaged with the world by military means, by economic means, by political means, all sorts of different ways. But the average person doesn't want to. And I I guess I don't know how you guys would really reconcile the lock of of domestic politics with that. Well, I think that they want to engage, at least in a broad sense. They just want to understand that engagement they want to understand how it impacts them and how they can impact it at least to the point of you know we don't necessarily you know i would imagine the average person doesn't necessarily need to know the minute details of everything but they're still interested in i mean look at you know the tariffs and everything that are going on with china and even with uh you know with canada it's it's still something that is very important to people they just want to understand you know what how does it impact me like it's not necessarily it's harder to 
to get a lot of people on board with this idea of, you know, it needs to tie into our core national interests, because that's kind of a boring phrase. Um, but people want to understand, how does it impact my day-to-day -day life? Sure, I mean, yeah, a lot of people aren't necessarily going to care about the overall grand strategy, um, at least in insofar as, like, you know, we might care as people who study these types of things and who want to influence the, the greater politics of the entire world to some degree. Um, they're not necessarily as interested in that, but they aren't interested in how does this impact my finances. Yeah. Well, to kind of go on from what Stephen started off with the five and ten year plans, I feel like if maybe the grand strategy would take away from like, you, you know, you guys know the United Nations has sustainable development goals where they, um, like, add on their goals, like, no poverty or um, to achieve primary education for everyone, to promote gender equality and etc. What if the grand strategy would break down into those goals, you know, by a certain year we would achieve this and that and then continue on? I feel like by doing so, it would be more clear and concise to the people that are not just in the government, but also to just the regular people. They would understand how it all works. Maybe they would be better engaged with it as well. And I feel it because right now I'm looking at this, I'm on the White House, and this is what the four vital national interests are in America. First is protecting the homeland, the American people and the American way of life, which is obvious. Second of all, promoting American prosperity. Third, preserve peace through strength. And four, advancing American influence. And then they're all saying that this, these four themes are guided by principled realism. Well, I don't know. Principled realism, I looked into it. It's a very ambiguous phrase. There's not much depth into it. Um, but it says here, that the strategy of these four pillars is realist because it's clear-eyed about global competition. It acknowledges the central role of power in world affairs, affirms that sovereign states are the best hope for a peaceful world, and clearly define our national interest. I don't know, this seems so general, like it doesn't do much, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I look at it as the problem of that is... A, a good start, I guess you could say, but it's just so broad mm -hmm. that obviously we're going to yeah. have fundamental disagreements about what all that means. And so exactly. it needs to be defined to the point where we can all, you know, from both sides of the aisle, from all across the American political spectrum, can look at it and go, yeah, I, I agree with that, generally speaking. And not just the idea behind it, but also the strategy of how we're going to implement that. And that's why it needs to be tied to, you know, I think it needs to be tied to, um, to just great power conflicts within the world today so it needs to be tied in opposition with rising authoritarianism throughout the world because I, I feel that that is something that most of us should be able to agree would be um that's the best way to implement that goal so i want to push back on that just a little bit because one of the things that i look at is that these goals should be more nebulous because things like limit the influence of china in southeast asia is that's an explicitly i guess antagonistic goal by the united states something that is definitely international interest something that is i would say in a vital national interest role um 
for the United States and for the world in general. But I don't know if you can say that explicitly in a national grand strategy thing, especially if it's going to be 10 years. I mean, at the beginning of 2000s, what we were worried about Japan overtaking the United States and becoming the new East Asian superpower and that we might have to try to, you know, limit their economic influence and look at five years later, they crashed in a dot-com bubble. Um, I think that it needs to be more ambiguous to ca- as a catch-all. So we shouldn't, if we have a national grand strategy that's, that is going to say we're going to limit the influence of major powers over smaller powers or something to that extent, which could apply to multiple different countries or honestly, the broader, sometimes the better, because while it, it you're right that we do, and I, I'm almost uh, contradicting myself here, we do have to uh, explain all this to the domestic public. One of the other things we have to do is we have to present this to the rest of the world and if we have a national grand strategy which has explicit bright lines people will walk right up to those lines and we're going to have the exact same sort of thing that we have going on in the cybersphere where all these countries are walking up right next to the line of war and so they're doing near war or short of war measures but they're not war and they can specifically uh, they can say we're not actually attacking you and you have these measures that you set out this bright red line and we are not crossing that bright red line. So what are you angry about, bro? And that's what we're kind of, that's what I think what we would face if we wrote those bright red lines out. I also do think that because the nature of international politics, I am a realist. I will say that right now. Um, the nature of international politics is con, uh, conflictual. If you have these tailored na- uh, goals to other countries, say, I don't know, to limit authoritarianism or to uh, limit influence of a specific country, one, I think that that interferes with domestic politics to some extent of another country, which I'm not sure we should be getting into anymore. I, I just, oh, my, my view has been on really flip-flopping on that. I've always been of the view that we should be able to interfere. We want to be able to interfere in other countries, but we don't want other countries to be able to interfere with us, which sounds really hypocritical and a hundred percent is, but that's just how States work. But yeah, that's, oh, that's sorry. the nature of power in general. So, yeah. But I mean, why ignore it? Well, I mean, we have all the, we're trying to change all these democracies around the world that are, I mean, say what you want, Orban was elected, Erdogan was elected. These are horrible, horrible human beings. I'm not going to mince words on that. But at what point do you have to say, well, but that's actually what their country wants. This isn't some rogue uh, Gaddafi regime which has taken over the country and just is keeping the people in, at gunpoint. The people actually want these leaders. I, I don't know if we're going to raise a submarine out of the waters next to their countries and say, oh, look, it's the Soviets, like we did with several other countries, and try to scare them into going our way. I, I have a problem with incorporating that into a national, a grand document that we are going to be pursuing. Well... 
Stephen, if you look into Russia's national document, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're going to see so much there. Um, basically, I've, been, I've seen Russia's document, and um, let me just say it's very detailed. And just what you described about interference into a foreign country, Russia actually talks about that, about Western influence in um, Central Asia, because um, Russia's interests are in that region. They want to preserve that by limiting Western influence in the region. And it explicitly tell like, in detail, it goes full on, like, a page about that. Um it was so interesting to just look at the document because this document not only just covered like strategy and military development and all of that, but they also talk about traditional Russian spiritual and moral values. This is like a new formulation where uh, they're just talking about protecting the Russian culture, the Russian development from foreign values from poor quality foreign popular culture and all of that. And of course, they're saying that these threats are coming from the West and basically putting the West next to terrorists and extremists, like under the same line. Sure, and I could see that. And I, I mean, I think that the United States has like a vested interest in keeping, if you want to say Chinese influence, or I don't think Russian influence could spend this far, but Russian influence out of the North and South American continents. But that's our near abroad. And I think that Russia can have that in their near abroad as well. But when you're talking about your far abroad and just a blanket statement saying we reserve the right to interfere in any country's internet in any country's domestic politics if we don't like it across the world. That seems a, a little. Yeah, I, I guess I should say that, um, you know, when I talk about America's grand national strategy should be defining itself in opposition to great rising authoritarianism uh, the focus of that is of course on our core strategic interests as they exist now so preventing rising authoritarian authoritarianism in the united states in canada in western europe in our core allied countries um, so it's almost a national strategy that defines itself first and foremost on on the defensive and then from there extrapolates that out to how do we prevent rising authoritarianism in other nations as well to the extent where we're not necessarily, you know, we're not overthrowing countries. We're not, you know, doing any of these horrible things that used to be part of the, uh, the national strategy, but, um, you know, something that at least is trying to prevent this rising tide of authoritarianism, which defines itself first and foremost in opposition to the democratic process. Sure. And I guess I have, uh, I have two more, kind of points on that one and i am gonna say i i apologize i sound really negative on this and i am not that negative i'm just i'm i'm when i'm looking at this i just keep thinking about the i'm always uh thinking about what might go wrong and one of the things i'm is the dean akiston trap right you define what your core international areas are or your core uh core interests are around the world and if you define those core interests Again, people push right up next to them. So Dean Akiston famously outlined all of America's core international interests uh, right after the World War II ended, and it included all countries or all of our major countries that we really liked, except for South Korea. So South Korea got invaded, and that's where you have the Korean War. 
excuse me, Korean War. I mean, I, I understand that, but at the same time, like, you have to define something, right? I mean, and, and because that does signal to allies that you are on our radar, we are looking to protect you, and, um, you know, at a certain point, you just, you got to do it, right? I mean, I think it was uh, Wayne Gretzky or Michael Scott, one of the two, who said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, so... Or it could have been Abraham Lincoln, I'm not sure. But. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't Sean Wilkes Booth, but... Um... Well, and that that kind of brings up another question for me is, are we looking then at limiting our international uh, presence in terms of if we delineate these core spheres of influence that we will be looking at in these core interests, will we be looking at reducing the status of all those other countries that are not within our core interests? So South America, North America, Western Europe, and East Asia we care about but the rest of the world we care about up to a point or how do, how do you guys think we well, approach that hasn't that always been you know like whatever's interest is in the country like whatever um they want and think they can benefit them they're going to worry about that certain well country. i think it's always been whatever interest has been in the news right <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's always been well i i because we have a a massive uh, refugee flows coming from Guatemala and Venezuela right mm-hmm. now. We have um, no Colombian Venezuela. I'm sorry to Guatemala, Colombian Venezuela, and you have massive amounts of killings going on in both those countries, and no one really cares about it. Although I'd say that's probably in our core sphere of influence or core sphere of uh, interest, at least. I mean, I would I would say it's to a degree it's part of our core interest because you know it's just geographically very close. But defining something like that does help us, um, you know, cut through a lot of the noise of everything that's happening throughout the world. So that way we don't get distracted by things that, although horrible and something that we need to at least bring to the international attention, um, is not something that we should get involved with militarily. So. You know, part of the reason for defining the strategy is so that we don't get, you know, we don't send troops to every far-flung uh, corner of the world that has, you know, a terrorist problem, pay, say, for instance. You know, I mean, how many different countries are we involved in militarily oh, in, Africa, in Africa alone <laughs> yeah. that, um, you know, as terrible as those things are that are happening in places like Niger and Chad, um does that require a U.S. military presence, or would it be better for us to focus our efforts on on great power conflicts? Yeah, I definitely agree that we should focus on great power po- conflicts. Um, I am a little worried that as we pull out of those other areas, which we define as not in our core national interest, that they will start to militarize uh, more. So if we pull, if we define the Middle East as not in our core national interest like what we were kind of doing in the Obama administration with the pivot East, right? Um, you're going to have countries that have historically never had a uh, offensive military force like Saudi Arabia go and take offensive military operations like they're doing in Yemen. And I do believe that that was directly a result of United States uh or the perceived notion that the United States wasn't as big of a security guarantor to Saudi Arabia as they were in the Bush administration or previous to that. So they said, we have to take care of this issue on ourselves. And then we run the risk of having Yemen's all over the world in terms of 
if the United States isn't going to take care of it, we're going to take care of it. We don't have the technology of the United States, and we don't have the sophistication, and we don't have probably the <laughs> the moral veracity in choosing our targets as the United States. But we will take the we will take that action regardless. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just that's going to be one of the outcomes if we do that. It is, but we can't be everywhere at once. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And that and being so sensitive to all of those, you know, individual localized conflicts is a extreme liability for us. I mean, look what's happened in, you know, because of Syria and because of Yemen, because the United States gets so heavily involved in those individualized conflicts that, you know, we're blind to everything else that happens. And it's very easy to, you know, for lack of a better word, it's very easy to bait the United States into a conflict that is not in its best interest at all. And to expend so much resources and energy trying to solve that one localized problem, but missing the greater the greater issue. Maybe the United States should just focus, you know, one problem at a time <laughs> instead of being everywhere all the time at the same time. You know, it's just to preserve its own um, resources and interests and focusing on its domestic policy and balancing that out with um, foreign policy, maybe like every put a plan for five years and say, hey, we're going to focus on this and that and that for now. And then if something happens, you know. Yeah. What was Richard Haas's book? Um, Valida, I know you read it because we were in the same class for this, but uh, oh, it's been a while. <laughs> oh, man. It was in Everin's Wilsey, Dr. Wilsey's class, and uh -huh. it was the return to the domestic. But Richard Haas would one of the previous presidents of the Foreign Relations Council laid out the case for retrenchment um, and basically trying to, we're saying, hey, international world, we've done, we have been the sole superpower in the world for quite some time, and it has absolutely exhausted us. We are going back to our was domestic policy. Was it foreign policy, sorry, was it foreign policy begins at home? Yes, that was, was that? the one. Yes. Okay, okay. I would agree with that completely. I mean, we need to focus on domestic <laughs> politics in order to even have a chance at defining yeah. a clear foreign policy. Yeah, and I think that, I, honestly, if if we want to get down to the brass tacks of that, I think a lot of it starts with, first, reducing our military footprint around the world, although I know I just said it's going to cause other conflicts. It's just not, not something we can sustain. I agree with both of you 100% on that. And with reducing our military footprint, we should reduce our military spending, we should um, probably increase our diplomatic spending. But I, one of the other things I did want to bring up was that we really should also have something we are striving to achieve, not just something we're striving to defeat. And that's one of the core things that makes a national strategy for me is something you're trying to do. And I'm not sure what the United States should be looking to do within the next 10 years internationally, except for maybe just... <laughs> go domestic yeah i mean and that's that's what's hard is that that's so hard to define to say that you know oh we want our domestic politics to be you know dot 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 better right like <laughs> i mean we all it's something that w we kind of know what it is when we see it but it's so hard to actually put it into words um but yeah we do need to be working towards that type of domestic policy that isn't so combative that isn't so tribal and adversarial and we'll know it when we see it but 
it's so hard to actually define what that truly is. And if we were to reach that that level of um, cooperation in domestic politics, then I do think that we would have at least a much better chance at extrapolating that out into defining a clear foreign policy and something that we can all agree on. But it starts at home. Yeah, and I feel like it's also primarily just driven by people these days at least like if somebody brings up a movement or something some sort of issue through social platforms and media people immediately start focusing on that you know while it was going on for a long time but just because people have brought it up just recently everybody puts their attention on that so i'm gonna also bring this in a little bit i apologize i'm kind of pivoting the conversation all over the place here but I think we're all in agreement that we should probably not full retrench, but start retrenching our foreign policy, not our foreign policy per se, but our global influence. But what does that do in regards to an aggressive China, a resurgent Russia and ethnic conflict? What are we going to, are, are we just going to say, Hey, we don't have the gumsha to be able to do it. You guys win or I don't think any other country in the world is going to try to stand up. I, I really don't. See, I don't think it's it's retrenchment, though. I don't think that this grand national strategy would need to, you know, admit defeat against, you know, Russia and China and just focus on things at home. But it's it's something that would refocus. So it would refocus our efforts specifically to those conflicts. But remembering that we have to shore up our own internal politics and our own internal you know, defenses against authoritarianism as well. I feel that we could do both. We just have to define both. And we have to make sure that both of those, that that is the focus so that we don't get distracted in all of these smaller conflicts around the world. Because I would argue that it's those smaller conflicts that have led us to the point where you know, we almost have to either say, yep, you've won in Asia, China, and then back off. Or you know, to get to the point where we have to say, we have to push back. Sure. So what do we do when Brundy actually uh, enters a stage where they have a ethnic cleansing? I, me and Mark could be an exact same example. I think that's really that I think that one's much more much closer to our core national security interest, which is why I didn't bring that up. But Brundy has been go undergoing some turbulent uh, times for the past three years, and it's been on the verge of a uh, ethnic civil war and hence ethnic cleansing for the past several years as well. Um, I just want to make sure that I have my country right here, so I'm going to look that up. Yeah. But um, I, I I just don't know what we're going to do with that. Basically, have another Rwanda on our hands where it's in nobody's core interest. So what happens to them? I mean, I think there's diplomatic approaches that we can take. I would not advise taking a military, a militaristic approach, simply because, you know, those need to be reserved for the great allied powers in east asia that we have so you would certainly want to maintain your militaristic approach for conflicts in you know south korea or in japan but for something like brunei which is a much smaller country that has far less influence in the region that you would want to to try to use diplomatic channels as much as possible so you know the carrot and the stick approach of if you continue to uh, engage in activities that appear to be ethnic cleansing you know we're going to sanction you we're going to do this and that or if you refrain from those we are going to help out your government in whatever way possible so that way 
you know, there's a clear, obvious approach that if they work with us, we can work with them. If they work against us, we will work against them. But in a diplomatic sense, not necessarily in a militaristic sense. And that's much easier to do, and it expends far less resources than trying to you know, propose a military solution to that type of thing. So now I, and I did look it up. It is Burundi, by the way, but Burundi. Okay. I, I <laughs> yes, but I am going to disagree with you on that because I do think that, I mean, if you think of like a conflict in Rwanda, it doesn't matter how many people are sanctioned there. If a million people are dead in several days, you, they're needed to be, and there should have been an international intervention into the conflict in Rwanda. And if the same thing happens in Burundi, if the same thing happens in Myanmar, I do think that I, I do think that the uh, that the United States and the international community in general, but I have very little faith in the international community to do so, to intervene in the conflict and stop the conflict. Um, if you want to go on a West Wing thing, to put the United States forces in the middle of two opposing forces, which are converging on each other, and say, "Yeah, if you want to fight, we're going to be right there." And yeah, I mean, and and I appreciate the uh, the West Wing reference to which you're referring, <laughs> where um, for for listeners who don't necessarily watch the West Wing very much, um, I believe that conflict was some type of conflict. I want to say in Central Asia between two opposing sides, and the president decided that instead of trying to you know force one side or another to a negotiation. They just dropped American forces right in between the yep. two opposing sides and said, all right, if you're going to fight, you have to go through us. Um, I mean, that could work. But in one sense, you know, what if this is happening in every individual localized village? You know, I mean, we can try to put ourselves directly in between those two forces. But if the two forces are intermingled within cities, I, geographically, you just can't do that. And what if you do and everyone says, okay, great, we'll fight through you anyway, we don't care. You know, it's not necessarily, conflicts aren't standing armies anymore, so so sure. trying that, I don't think that would work. Well, I but mean, I, we, and so we kind of tried to do that in, in Iraq, right? But you could still send in peacekeeper, and I argue that Iraq, I know people, I, a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I argue Iraq is better now than it would have been at the same time under Saddam Hussein. But that's for another thing. But I mean, we had peacekeepers in Lebanon, and they weren't... We had peacekeepers in uh, Palestine, we had peacekeepers in uh, the Balkans, and you could put peacekeepers into uh, Burundi, you can put peacekeepers into all these other countries. Um, but what, what I'm really... Uh, what I think that I'm really getting at is where... What are the moral and ethical responsibilities of the United States to the world? What are the moral and ethical responsibilities of the international community to the world with the United States? And then what are the capabilities of the rest of the world compared to the United States? Because I think that we have a lot of ethical responsibilities to the rest of the world. And this is what makes foreign policy so hard. I'm not saying that this makes everything that we've said wrong, but saying this makes it hard, that we have a lot of ethical responsibilities to the rest of the world. The international community has a lot of ethical responsibilities to the rest of the world. And for a large part, only the United States is willing to act on them. I, I, well, sorry. Oh, sorry, Stephen. I was just going to say, if 
like if you're opposing to something, say United States is opposing the government, the system in a certain country, then I feel like you're already taking that. You have to take the responsibility, the aftermath. Otherwise, why are you starting to oppose? Why are you say you know disagreeing with the form of government if you don't want to take responsibility for those um, opinions? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, and. I mean, I, I would hope that we're all opposed to uh, a country perpetrating genocide on its people. I mean, we all talk about the Holocaust and we say, gosh, how could no one have done anything until it ended? And we're kind of talking now about, well, is it really international interest? I mean, to intervene in a genocide? It's kind of where well, it comes I mean, from. Yeah, nobody, we all agree that genocide is bad. But part yeah. of but yeah. part of the problem is that is defining what is and is not a genocide. I mean, we're seeing that in Myanmar right now. So you know, most of the Western countries can say, "Yep, that's that's pretty much a genocide right there." But you know, if a country like China steps in and says, "No, it, it's really not," then mm-hmm. then what do you do? I mean, you can't get the UN Security Council to do anything now because China has veto power. So. But that's why well, I bring up just... like a country like Rwanda or like Burundi, where they don't mm-hmm. have a major sponsor that was going to protect them. And I realize major countries with major sponsors are in a category all off by themselves because God forbid you do anything in Mongolia without China's say so. But mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how we act with the countries that don't have those major country sponsors either. It's It's not just the countries with a major country sponsor. It's any country that's outside of our core influence you know and in those cases we can try to get a type of international peacekeeping force um and if it works great but i mean if it doesn't you know there's only so much that we can do to try to stop horrible things from happening in the world and if the united states is expected to stop every horrible thing in the world then well i mean you've seen what we we've been trying to do that for you know what the last 25 years and Obviously, it's not working. We can't stop every horrible thing in the world. I think the best we can do is is try to just lessen, to mitigate those as much as possible, and to try to lessen the impacts of it. And the United States is going to take criticism either way, even if it interferes in a country or even if it backs up and does nothing. Yeah, yeah. that's why I think one of, the, one of the best things we can do is just to try to provide humanitarian support. I think one of the things that we really missed out on in in the conflicts in Syria and some of the spillover in Iraq is maybe we didn't necessarily need to just pour as many troops as we can or you know arm a bunch of rebels because we all know how that goes. Um, maybe we don't need to do that so much as to just set up places where we can provide humanitarian support and to just try to lessen the effects of some of these horrible conflicts. I guess how would the... How would that work in your mind? Because I'm thinking about Iraq, uh, specifically after the Gulf War, where we set up a safe zone for the Kurds, and then we didn't enforce a safe zone for the Kurds, and so the Kurds were kind of massacred. No, 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 no. The Kurds weren't massacred. It was in the south um, area, and I believe it was the uh, Shia that were massacred. I'm sorry. Well, see, it worked for the Kurds, didn't it? I mean, it worked for when we defined... Uh, who we were going to help protect or that we were just going to help stop mass indiscriminate killing, it worked just in the places that we enforced it. But we didn't enforce it in the the southern parts of Iraq, and you you saw what happened there. 
I guess to me it just looks like, you know, and, and maybe it's kind of a, you know, a naive sort of optimistic type of approach, but, you know, if we can provide that type of humanitarian support, refugee relief, that sort of thing, um, I mean, that's certainly better than nothing, and it's probably going to be more effective, at least in mitigating the harm, than pouring a bunch of troops into a location. And it's not going to work in every solution, in every situation, but I feel like that might be a more realistic approach than trying to to solve everyone's problems. Yeah, and I agree, you can't solve everyone's problems, and it's... I apologize, I am basically having a debate with myself on the podcast right now with you guys involved between, <laughs> hey, we really need a retrench, and we really need to focus on our domestic politics, and we really need to, you know, withdraw the military <laughs> from every single spot on the face of the earth so that we only have it in core spots and then on the other hand my kind of my ethical leanings going yeah but what are you going to do when people start dying because you're not there if you have the power to do something and you don't do it that is your fault that it happened sort of thing so i I apologize for everyone having to listen to that (laughs) well that's the thing right if we had a clearly defined national strategy we could all just agree to stick with it regardless of the positives and negatives and try to work from there but that's the problem is that the debate that we're having is the debate that the entire foreign policy community in the united states has had since the end of the cold war and we just need to at a certain point just pick something and go with it otherwise we end up spinning our wheels much like we have this entire conversation without actually landing on you know what do we do and how do we do it let's do that then what what do we do and how do we do it well again i think a a policy that's first and foremost uh, on the defensive of America's core democratic strategic interests, and that essentially is in opposition to rising authoritarian powers, with the understanding of that that is predominantly driven by great power conflict. So essentially pushing back against China and Russia. I'll throw in my hat for um, securing or withdraw, uh, retrenching the United States and it's uh, a lot of its military, not all of its military, to core vital interests as defined by, I don't know, we can define that at some point, but as defined by us. And I, I don't know if I have as big of an emphasis on authoritarianism to my chagrin, um, but retrenching, building up the domestic base, and at that point, we're going to have to create a new national grand strategy, which is sustainable involvement in the rest of the world because i believe that we are overextended and i think that for a meantime we have to as i say retrench and then find a modus vivendi what about you valida um i would focus in improvements in technology education healthcare, just the general goal of america's quality for life you know not forgetting that um america's economy um as for military, um, I also I'm gonna side with Stephen. I don't know if I would focus on the authoritarianism, um, just because I don't know. I just don't want it to like isolate. I don't want to pinpoint on Russia and China, but also talk about deterrence, national security, societal mobilization. Maybe include a set of metrics for the success of a certain military strategy. You know. You know, that's actually a good question that I didn't think about. How do we do deterrence if we start withdrawing? Because deterrence is first and foremost psychological. 
you do something, we're going to hit you back. If we're withdrawing, yeah. they can kind of, even if we set down a red line, they say, well, will they really enforce that red line? Because, I mean, they're withdrawing and they're just trying to get out of all these things. And they've said on this podcast that the uh, Russian and Chinese intelligence agencies listen to because we're so influential that <laughs> they're overextended in the rest of the world. So why why shouldn't we impinge on them? What What is their deterrence value? Yeah, but see here, at least we have three clearly defined strategies and we could try to choose one and then go from there. And I think that's the real takeaway from all of this is that we just need to have a defined strategy and stick with it. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Valida, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share in our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is also available on Stitcher and iTunes, where you can subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.